You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast, interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guests and hear their story. Steve, welcome to Real Faith Stories. It's exciting to have you on the program today. Pleased to be here. Well, Steve, you and I have known each other for, gosh, I think about 10 years now, plus, right? Yeah. And I was amazed at the story you told me back when I first met you related to an absolute epiphany you had while lying flat on your back in a hospital bed. You surveyed your life up to that point and made a wholehearted decision to make the greatest impact you could possibly make before leaving this earth. Before we go there, though, please share a little bit about your backstory. I am an Oklahoma City boy. My father, who passed away years ago, he would probably be about 104. He was born in Oklahoma City, so we go back a long way. My grandfather was an accountant, was in the first class of CPAs. He was CPA number six for the state of Oklahoma. We've been around a long time, and I grew up in the perfect Christian home. Parents were perfect examples. I was so fortunate to have a good start. That doesn't mean that I didn't get a little ornery every once in a while and (laughs) need to to find the way back a, a couple of times. Sure. But yeah, it was a real, real good start. And that served me well when things got tough a little later. Married 39 years. We had a couple of kids, just, you know, the the story that everyone kind of lives for. And we started a business that was a design and manufacturing company. We wanted to keep it small. We wanted to make sure and get to our kids sporting events and rehearsals, recitals, whatever they needed. We were a uh, real tight-knit family, and, and it worked. We built that business. We kind of always joked that design and manufacturing, the manufacturing was kind of a necessary evil to make money off what we enjoyed doing, and that was design. We always tried to design products where we didn't see any competition, design for niches and markets and make prototypes, and then take that product to that niche and, and sell it. And uh, did that for about 22 years. What's an example of one of the products that you sold and designed? Well, we were real early in the knockdown furniture, way before there was an Ikea within a driving range. We would research German hardware, German knockdown hardware. And then my type of design, I would try and design furniture for kind of institutional furniture, commercial needs. We got into office coffee service where they would need a cabinet to put the brewer on, Mm -hmm. vending industry. We were right on the crest of taking computers into stores, namely grocery stores that could track inventory. And they needed a very specific type of furniture to house all the label stock and printers. So yeah, we take very deliberate kind of lists of, of needs those parameters and design. And then we design it in such a way that was almost a magic act. It went from a two-dimensional thing to a three-dimensional thing with like eight screws with a penny as the, the tool to tighten the hardware. And it was always impressive to see it go together and real strong, last long. You guys were early IKEA. 
Yeah, we actually got a, a patent out of the deal in, in the late 80s and thought it was going to be a smooth road. We were on our way, but we, we definitely hit some entrepreneurial ups and downs mm-hmm. and uh, then got more into mass production, designed photo frames. We were kind of at the lead for photo frames where they were directed specifically at a buyer. Typically, mm-hmm. in the early days, a photo frame was four sticks molding. We started coming up with designs that were for grandparents and parents. We kind of helped kick that off, and now it's everywhere. You sustained an injury when you were 15 years old. What happened? The short story is I was not a very good skier at 15. I went down a, I thought, a fairly short mogul run, and the person several hundred feet ahead had a fall. And my trying to avoid that person, skis came out from under me, and I remember being in the air for an uncomfortable amount of time, (laughs) knowing that I was going to come down at some point. And the termination of that flight was a very quick, very hard jolt on the uphill side of another mogul, and Mm. it was that rapid stop that tore a ligament in my spine that held one of the largest discs in that spinal column. And it was several years before MRIs were even invented. So no one could really figure out why I was in so much pain. I looked okay in x-rays. I didn't break any bones. But from that point on, I was in, it was a chronic situation. It was like having a sprained ankle that never heals. If I stepped off a curb wrong, I would be flat on my back on ice for a couple of days. Oh my. So started having to let certain athletic things go to the wayside, started going much more low impact and went from baseball to tennis to fly fishing (laughs) and worked all the way down to not much at all. But uh, yeah, that finally caught up with me. At 40, I was having difficulty getting up and down off the floor and still had fairly young kids and should be active. And so we turned to trying to do something about that, started going in, had MRIs done and and started researching the options of the actual device. And that got so interesting to me because of the design element started looking at different types of fusions. My wife used to tease me that I was shopping for back surgery hardware like most people shop for sports cars. Yeah, it's only because you're an engineer. Yeah, I really appreciated. And through a series of really cool miracles, I was now working for another company and insurance didn't cover this procedure at the time. And they found out in open enrollment that if they changed insurance companies, the new one would. So I think there were about 125 people in the company changed their carrier just to get me covered. That's incredible. So then you had back surgery and what happened? What happened after that, that landed you in the hospital about six weeks later? The original surgery appeared to go just phenomenally well. It is an anterior approach. They go through your abdomen to get to your spine without going through all the nerves. And uh, so there was a significant approach to get back to where they needed to be. And I was sewn shut 
and everything looked fantastic. I was up and going with Jim Thorpe Rehab up and down the halls the next day, and everyone had a real good feel for it. So I, I went home, and within the first 24 hours, everything started coming unraveled. Pain level continued to go up. They were trying to work me off. The pain medication that I had actually been on for nearly six months before the surgery because I had gotten in such bad shape right before they they operated. And uh, boy, it just didn't work. I, I couldn't function. Everything was showing signs of real serious complications. And it was the most intense six weeks I could have ever, ever imagined. So after just, you know, weekly, a string of doctor's appointments, trying to figure out if this was just normal inflammation and it's just pressing on nerves or what it was, six weeks later, I lost from a high of 190 pounds down to about 145. So I looked like I was in trouble. And the last doctor that saw me just said, well, we're going to send you straight back to the ER so they took me through the emergency room, put me on a gurney, uh, admitting, followed us up to the room of the same hospital that the surgery was performed at. And of all the crazy things, I was wheeled into the same room I'd been in six weeks earlier. And that feeling of being back there, not knowing what my near future held, I felt like in that moment that, yeah, maybe I designed a lot of things, but I hadn't designed anything that had purpose or meaning or helped someone. My daughter had a few years earlier sponsored a little child through one of the great organizations that does that. And it was such a big deal to her that she put the picture of that little sponsored child on the fridge. And that was the immediate image I had being rolled back into that hospital room that I'd never helped a girl like that. And that was unacceptable. I started thinking, man, if I'm rolled into the same room after 20 or 30 years, it might be, might be too late at that point. You're having some, what has my life amounted to kind of thoughts, weren't you? Absolutely. Where did you land with those thoughts? What happened? Well, I had a lot of time on my hands and uh, the hospital room wouldn't let my wife stay there all day and all night. She had a job and I would always put a brave face on, hey, I'm feeling better today. Get out of here. And, and in those quiet moments, you start thinking, I had someone come by the room and say, hey, I feel like everything's going to be okay. Hey, remember, everything works together for good. You know, I, I believed that. But at the same time, I knew that that wasn't the entire verse. And that verse actually was the first real challenge to me, where I thought I could start as this physical journey of struggling started shifting into a spiritual journey. And it's a familiar verse to all of us. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. I didn't have any problem with that. I mm -hmm. love the Lord with all my heart. But then there's a comma and the last parts into them who are called according to his purpose. That one is beyond my control. So I started trying to figure out how to be better prepared to receive that call. For his purpose. Yeah, to be ready to enter into something that was a part of his purpose. 
So it's like God's got a purpose in line and he sees that. How do I get in those sites? And I started talking radical stuff. My wife would, you know, came the next day and it was, Hey, we've got to put our faith into motion. We've got, let's, let's get out there, find a mission, something that we can do that will impact people. And my wife, she didn't try and comfort me and tone down that radical rhetoric. She showed up the next day with a copy of Irresistible Revolution and said, okay, baby, read this. And I could barely get through that book. I couldn't see the words through the tears that kept pooling in my eyes. Who wrote it? Shane Claiborne. Okay. Irresistible Revolution by Shay Claiborne. But that's what's started me off, started taking stock of what I had to offer that, you know, the the oil and the the widow, she was in trouble. The the prophet was there. She devalued the little bit of oil that she had left and and she thought she and her two sons were gonna die. He said, Well, you know what? Why don't you just go gather all the jars you can find and put them in your tent? And he blessed it and he just told her to start pouring, and when one of the empty vessels is full, move it aside and keep going. And the next time you see the widow, she's come out. She's she needs more jars. Wow. Yeah. So if if she could devalue that little bit of oil, maybe I was devaluing or undervaluing the design experience that I'd had for 22 years. Mm. So it was that moment, that prayer, that God, if you can use that. I am all in. I am giving you everything I've ever done and the potential of everything I might do in the future. If you can use it for your purpose, I'm a willing servant. There was no vestige of hesitation. This was, oh yeah, let's go. Yes, it was unfortunate that I had had to go through what I did. Yeah. That made it so palpable, so real. And the tears that I'm trying to hold back right now, remembering it, (laughs) (laughs) were flowing at the time. And everyone then coming in to see me was coming to see a different guy, someone who was very sure that God had this situation under control and that there was going to be something amazing, a miraculous conclusion to these events. And that ended up being very prophetic. People come in one day and they see Steve. They come in another day and they're seeing a completely different Steve. Yeah. What were a couple quick comments you could share with me that people gave you when they saw this difference? I just started having really cool ideas. It was the first time in my life I'd been able to sit in a lazy boy and binge watch <laughs> modern marvels and how it's made. And I got to see all the cutting edge new things that I hadn't really been tied into working for myself and really felt like I was getting an education or, or, you know, seeing new things that would be valuable to me moving forward. So everyone noticed that increase in drive and, and which was good. They were very pleased that I wasn't just sinking away. So you got out of the hospital, you start to recover and then Something happened with respect to your work. Tell me a little bit about that. I went back to work and all of a sudden it didn't have quite the interest or the allure, the problems that we would 
try and solve there were so small compared to what I felt like I was being called to solve and really felt like I needed a vocational shift. I kind of thought it through in my head that I could start knocking doors on more traditional nonprofits or organizations that that kind of have solution-oriented things for community in their focus. So I went up to my desk and took that first step of faith that I was hearing from God correctly. Uh, do you remember desk calendars, the big yeah. pad of paper? That's where I wrote all my notes for everything coming up that week and month. And I flipped about three pages, three months into the future and looked at the day that fell right in the middle of that desk calendar. And that was Wednesday, June 18. This would still be, I believe, 2008 at this point. And I circled that day with a bright orange highlight highlighter and didn't write anything in it because not everyone knew that I was planning to work myself out of that job. And the Days and weeks went by, and the Friday before that last week, I got a call that the morning ramp up of all the equipment, we had diamond cutting saws and different types of heat producing equipment, and we had a recirculation pump that was the lifeblood of the entire facility, and the pump was not pulling water, it was not operational, and it had shut down everything, and I said, that's a lucky Lucky thing that, you know, I'm still here because I know a guy that knows everything about pumps. I didn't know anything about pumps, but I knew a guy. And I called a friend. I don't think I had called him for months. We hadn't gotten together in probably decades. He was best friend in high school and college roommate type guy. Owned a big pump company. And when I called, it was mid-morning, a beautiful June day, Friday he wasn't in his office. And the secretary said, do you want to leave a message? And I said, absolutely. I said, hey, I don't know if you know what's happened to me and what I've been through, but I would love to reconnect, maybe do lunch or something. So, hey, when you get this message, give me a call. I'd love to hear from you. I didn't hear from him that day. Saturday went by, Sunday went by, Monday morning hit. My phone rang very early. It was him, but the story behind it, he had come to a point, he had been given a pump uh, specification list out of Willow Creek in Chicago. A church in Chicago. Yeah. And because he was a pump distributor, they thought, oh my gosh, this guy can find anything. And he thought so too, didn't lack for self-confidence kind of guy. So he starts looking for this pump that could fulfill this humanitarian need. And there was nothing on the market. And that Sunday, he got together with what was kind of going to be his starting board of directors just informally and said, we can't find what they're looking for. So I think we're just going to tell them we struck out. And this older gentleman, the wisest man I think I've ever met outside my father, said, wait a second, there's got to be another way. And the guy that owned the pump company said, well, we could design something from scratch and everyone went yeah let's do that and he just immediately said that's that was the dumbest thing there's no way we could you know come up with something new it's an old industry everything that's going to be tried has been tried and and then he said but i do know i do know one guy that designs products for a living 
He said, I'll at least give him a shout out on Monday. Let me pause here and summarize. So your circulating pump that basically is the lifeblood to keep all the equipment cool dies at your work. You reach out to this gentleman that you've known but haven't talked to in years. And at the same time, unbeknownst to you, he has had a meeting with Willow Creek and they're talking about a pump for humanitarian purposes to use in Africa to pump water out of the ground. And you have a message waiting for him. And he has already thought of you and didn't even know you had called previously with a totally separate issue, right? Exactly. What happened next? He had the blinking light on his phone that he had a message. So he took that message first and it was me and it freaked him out. So he called me and just went crazy and said, I've got a project. I need help. I think it's right up your alley. I think you've got the heart for it. I need to meet with you. And I think I was busy that day. He was out of town the next day. He said, Wednesday, let's not push it any further than Wednesday. I said, Wednesday works perfectly for me. So we hung up with a destination and a time agreed upon. I got the incredible honor of walking into my office, sitting down at my desk and writing the time, place, and the, the guy inside the box I had circled three months ago. So it didn't being honest. I mean, if I had been really spiritually attuned right then, I probably would have come undone, but I didn't think it was that that much out of the ordinary. Two days later, we met at a Vietnamese restaurant and he unveiled a, a list of maybe 10 parameters on what this organization in Chicago wanted to see. And some of them were more physical parameters, obviously, how deep they wanted to go. They didn't want it to go past 80 feet because they didn't want it expensive. They didn't want it overly engineered. They wanted about five gallons a minute flow rate. One of the big ones was they wanted a bill of material in the, that took to build just the pump for under $50. And that one, no one that worked for my buddy thought that was possible. Now, this is just to clarify, this is a hand pump, right, that you would dig a hole for. Yeah, real pump. Uh, so they wouldn't have to go down with the buckets and continue to contaminate the water every time they would handle the bucket and then put it back down in the drinking water. This would be a sealed borehole, but still a manual pump. So in the parameters, though, something that hit me, I like statistics. I like being able to bounce back and forth inside You know, someone that's thought this through already. But there was a couple of philosophical parameters that really got me going. The one that turned out to be the greatest because it had the longest life. It impacted multiple designs. This parameter limited me to only use material in the design that already existed in Africa, Hmm. already existed in the regions that needed that pump. And the long goal was so that it could be manufactured there. Just some fantastic forward thinking. We're, We're talking 13, 14 years ago. This was crest of the wave, radical, you know, solved the water crisis through commerce. What? Creating jobs? That was that was new stuff as a child. I wanted an Apollo 13 experience badly. I wanted something to be so important and needed to save the people with only what was in the lunar lander in the capsule. That experience. 
So wait a minute. Since you were a child, you dreamed of creating something significant. I'm talking world-changing. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have this conversation with God in the hospital bed. This transformation occurs with respect to your desires. And all of a sudden, here you are with an opportunity to do that. And I will stop and say, you know, this guy finally looked across the table and said, are you interested in this? (laughs) (laughs) You can imagine the, the reaction to that. I said, well, as it happens, this is my last day at my job. I'll wake up tomorrow morning and start this project. And he went nuts. And he was like, wait, wait, this isn't like a paying gig. Uh, we, we have no we have no money. And I said, that's okay. This is what I've been praying for. And I'm, I'm going to be all over it. So that conversation, Steve, happened on... On Wednesday, June 18th. Oh, 18th. Okay. That was your last day yeah. that you'd circled? Yep. Okay. Got it. Middle of June. That's right. Yeah. And uh, of all the crazy things, I went back to the shop after that lunch and the coolest guy, one of the customers, born again Christian, was placing an order at the counter and saw me come in and just said, whoa, what? where did you go for lunch? And I said, I think I just witnessed a miracle. And he reminds me of that every time I see him, that he was the first guy that witnessed that that fire in me. What did he see that made him say that, Steve? I may have been walking on two inches of air. I'm not <laughs> sure. The, the, the position I was in was very heavy. I got all the customer complaints and had to figure it out. So it was just oppressive. And I was ready to be out from under that and to be able to walk into exactly what I was praying for. And instead of me finding that person or being able to brag that, hey, I figured out which organization could use me best. No way. It came to me. No, Brian, no man can boast. So it really felt right. So I was definitely on on my toes when I was coming back in that that building. Let me shift now. And you went on a quest prayerfully to fulfill the obligations that were set forth by this team from Willow Creek to create this pump, right? And be able to source these components in country. And you went through quite an arc in terms of trying to get the answer to this. What was the breakthrough in the research that you did that was like the ultimate aha moment for you? Yeah, the not only had I never purchased a water pump, didn't know how to read a pump curve, never worked with PVC pipe on that list of materials that I asked for and received. So I kind of knew what they already had. PVC was top of the list. So I went to Lowe's and would stand in the PVC aisle for hours at a time, literally looking at every single fitting pipe size. I had my calipers and my notebook. I look at things that were in the PEX line that was brand new back then. And Sorry, I'm, I'm just imagining the security people reviewing footage going, this guy yeah. is standing for, what is he, is he casing the place? He's going to steal PVC. Brian, it was real time. I would stay there until I was convinced every security camera was looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the same guy would keep walking by. Are you sure you don't need anything? And after three hours, because I was on a super tight budget, I would walk out with you know $5.67 worth of parts. And I would go home and try and do something. 
And the first thing that I did was this guy put me under some sort of challenge. I think there was a time challenge. So I wanted to do something really quickly. So I just kind of imagined cutting the inner tube out of a bike. I knew they had inner tubes, getting a cross fitting, a one inch cross fitting, a PVC and putting it on a one inch PVC pipe and then cutting a slot in the top of that, uh, securing the, the ends so that the water would flow by that piece of, you know, bicycle tubing and then catch like a parachute and possibly it would keep going up the five foot, one inch pipe. And so I filled the washing machine with water. It was warm outside. I'm still not just a hundred percent healthy and cut all those pieces, cut the back tire off my mountain bike. Like I was ever going to ride that again and went in and for the first time heard the beautiful sound of dunk, dunk, dunk of water coming up the tube. And when it started coming out the top of the pipe, I couldn't stop. I had raised water for the first time within two hours of the first day. And so I texted this guy and said, been working on project for two hours, raising water with just PVC pipe and bicycle inner tubes. And hit send, waited, waited, waited. It's my old Blackberry. And then, bzz, 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 and it, it just read, you stud. <laughs> and that was the initiation to get him excited that I felt like it was possible. So I started researching everything I could. I was obvious fan, followed Leonardo da Vinci when I was young and up through college years and read books and looked at all of his drawings and paintings, traveled to Italy and to see his works in person. And so I pulled a da Vinci book off the shelf because it kind of hit me that there was one weird design that was real out of the ordinary. And sure enough, it was a water raising device where he had an air pump on one side and it would open and close a valve inside a wine flask down inside the well. And that would incrementally raise water up a tube on the other side. And I thought, what a fantastic way to start this process. So I went and bought all the components to reproduce the Da Vinci design in modern materials. And it worked. Wow. It didn't work for the application we were looking for, but it was a great way to start. And it started the ball rolling and it started me looking backwards in time to the oldest water raising devices that had been recorded. That was the inspiration I needed. I kept making different prototypes, finally had about six or seven of them. And the individual from Chicago that really headed this project flew down to Oklahoma City and got to take them out of the truck one at a time. It was kind of a, a process of coming up through the centuries and millennia of mm-hmm. how people raised water. And he reluctantly chose kind of the more complex, the, the last one I was working on. But I wasn't real pleased with it. And after he left, then my buddy swung around and wanted to give me a high five. And, and I said, wait, whoa, no, we're not done with this. We haven't checked off every box. And he was just, ah. That that make me so mad. You, this is it. He chose it, and I said, "No, it's not good enough." And that weekend, the the flash in the pan that every design type person lives for, where unrelated things come together in a unique way. It was actually a conversation with my wife because it was the first day that I didn't just 
bounce out of bed at like 5 a.m. I was really trying to figure out what was the problem with each of the previous six designs. And it was always trying to get around the inside dimension of PVC that always changes from schedule to schedule and manufacturer to manufacturer. And she asked me, what was it about PVC that never changed? Hmm. Engaging question. I said, well, it's the outside of the pipe because it's extruded through a die. And then it hit me because of the prototypes I've been working with that the only other thing in a PVC system that never changes is the inside of the coupling that's designed to glue on the outside of that pipe. And all of a sudden, I had a way to nest an inch and a quarter coupling and pipe inside a two-inch pipe and bridge the gap between the outside of the pipe and the inside of the two-inch coupling. And it pressurized the water. I went out on my back deck, made the first real rudimentary prototype in about 30 minutes, went out on the back deck and uh, shot water over the back fence. We backed up to Coltrane Road and shot it further than I ever thought possible. Every hair on the back of my neck stood up and I called the guy and I said, okay, I need to come down to the shop. You need to meet me there. I've got one more design to show you. And went down, demonstrated it. He just went nuts. And knowing the most about water pumps handicapped him from figuring out how this pump worked. It was so counterintuitive. And he wanted to quickly patent it so someone else wouldn't steal it, even though we were going to make it open source and give it away. So I was tried to quickly look up where it, you know, maybe existed previously in time. And, and I was looking through that uh, hundred and 50-year-old book. And now that I was looking for that design, I knew what I was looking for this time. You know, there's 600 pages in the book. I flipped through and saw what I had just reinvented. And the original patent for the design was from England in 1675. So 1675 to 2008, 333 years later, that design checked off every requirement that was needed in Africa then. Wow. Yeah, it was really a cool journey. Mind-blowing. And then you went to Zambia in East Africa and proved this design worked, and it touched literally thousands of people, didn't it? It did. I think at last count, we were over 4,000 installations. It was the springboard for a water charity here in Oklahoma City to take off. Mm -hmm. It is now being repurposed. It is sliding from only being used in developing countries to being a true solution-based opportunity for emerging regions where it's not uh, single communities that have one or two of these pumps. It's single family units, and the water table is just perfect for it. This can slip into the the existing casing as the water table drops out from under suction pumps, those bottle pumps that you see everywhere. Those are being rendered useless because they rely on the atmospheric pressure. So once they drop out from under the ability to pull suction, something else has to go in that pushes water to the surface, and that's what ours does. So it's about to have a new life or a new use 
and we are gearing up and looking at maybe 60, 90 days away from that happening. So excited about that too. Wow. I'm just thinking about this journey and it started with a passion at nine years old to make a huge impact. And then the reinvigoration of that through the very challenging experience with your surgery. But here you are and you're impacting the world. It's amazing. I have to ask, Steve, in this journey, you've no doubt someone's listening to this and they're saying, oh my word, I would love to make an impact like that. What kind of advice would you give somebody who's thinking that or is thinking, I'm so far away from that space, but I'd sure like to get there. What would you say to them, Steve? There were a lot of biblical characters in that same position. Didn't think there was any way, didn't think the Lord could multiply and provide and, and show a way through. The amazing thing, I've talked with a lot of people since this. This is maybe 13 or 14 years since being in the humanitarian type design world. And there are always people that don't feel qualified. I have talked to, and there were engineers in the group, people accustomed to irrigation and pumps and everything. I actually had one young man say, well, I'm the outcast in this group. I'm a business major. I said, well, the guy that doesn't think he belongs in this room might be the most important person here. (laughs) (laughs) It was the business approach. It was truly solving problems long-term. And we wanted to get him involved and get his perspective. So it's, it's typically the people that are overlooking or undervaluing something that God has given them. You were saying that the person in the room who feels the most unqualified oftentimes is the one who is ultimately the best qualified. Yes, and saw that time and time again. Very meek and mild uh, guy that went to Togo, a group of about 10 or 12, um, very introverted. And if they're more introverted than I am, that's really introverted. <laughs> and I was kind of talking with each individual. I would only be getting about you know, four or five of the people that went on the trip for the well drilling portion. I finally talked to this old gen- older gentleman and he said, well, I'm, I'm just a geologist. <laughs> <laughs> You're just a geologist. Yeah, I deal with, you know, and he said a couple other <clears throat> a couple other things. He was the perfect person. He took all the statistics and told us what we were digging through and mapped out everything. Oh, my gosh. So it's the people that really have a hesitancy, uh, you know, I think it's just praying for the boldness to to accept that, hey, you know, I'm not going to undervalue my gifts. I'm mm. not going to undervalue what God's blessed me with, and I'm going to try and use them for the greatest good for his kingdom, his purpose. I love that. What, a, what an incredible takeaway for everything we've talked about. What is the best way for someone to find out more about what you're doing, Steve? What's the website? AlliedH2O.com. Okay. AlliedH2O.com. That'll be in the show notes. Well, as we finish up here, Steve, I'd like to pray with you for our listeners. Yeah. 
Let's do that. Father, thank you for what you did in Steve's life, for the vision you placed in him as a child, and the way you brought everything back, and how you've answered this heartfelt prayer to have an impact on the world. And Steve and I pray for everyone listening to this that is saying, Lord, I would love to have that kind of impact. I would love to make a difference in this world. And Steve and I ask and agree together that you will bring to mind those things that will open up the hearts of everybody listening to see what you've placed in their hands, regardless of how small they may think it is. And we ask you to use it and to bring you great glory through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Steve, for being on the program. What an awesome story. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening.